The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. Today we're discussing the third of the commandments, and these commandments are the codification of all the moral laws that God has given to man. And the preeminence of the law is expressed not only in its reception by Moses, who was regarded as the greatest of the prophets, but more so by the affirmation of, of Jesus Christ, who is God manifested in the flesh. Jesus promised that there was not one word of this law that would go unfulfilled, and so he was committed to the strictest obedience to the law. And it was necessary for him to keep all of it so that he could earn righteousness that could be transferred to us by faith in him. Faith is the vehicle by which we receive Christ's righteousness, all the benefits of his obedience, and it is by his righteous obedience to the law and not by our obedience that we're saved. Now, the commandments are important because they are the revelation of God's character. In each of them, we learn something about God. The first four teach us that we are to love God supremely because he is our maker and our authority, and they teach us to honor God in the highest expressions of honor that are due to him. And then the next six commandments teach us to treat our fellow man, how to treat him well. And those are also expressions of God's character because God never treats us in any way but the right way that we need to be treated. God treats us according to his boundless love. And so the first four commandments speak of the vertical relationship that we have with God. The next six speak of our horizontal relationships that we have with each other. And they, like those first ones, are also revelations of God's character. Now, the third commandment is in the seventh verse, which says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And that verse is as Calvin expressed, The Lord will have the majesty of his name to be held inviolably sacred by us. And we agree to that, that the name of God must be held sacred because it is the name that is above every other name. Every week that we enter into this sanctuary, we need to be aware that we come into the presence of the Almighty Sovereign God. And we know, of course, that God is everywhere, but there is a special sense that when we come into this place, that the Holy Spirit is with us in a very special presence. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18:20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of him, of them. And so as seraphim that stand on the threshold of the presence of God in our own hearts, we need to say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And I do believe that that kind of reverence is missing from the modern church. You know, it used to be that, that church buildings were built to reflect an attitude of reverence, of solemn worship. And I'm not saying that a building will actually make us closer to God, but our designs and uses of buildings might well tell us how much that we respect the God that we serve. 
Perhaps some of the designs that are used for a church building are done without much thought, so it's not our intent to defame the Lord in what we do. But that's exactly the point of worship. That is, we've got to think about what we're doing. We have to carefully consider what we're doing when we come to worship the Lord God. Now, I, I, won't, I want you to take this in the way that it's intended. Uh, I, I am disappointed that 30 years ago, a sanctuary was built to double as a basketball gym. A few years ago, I was approached by the elders of a Baptist church in the Bay Area who came over to talk with me and look at the building and said that they would like to build a building, a facility that's similar to ours. And I said to them, don't do it. I said, build a church building. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong because we are blessed to have a place like this to meet. There are many, many other churches in our area that can't afford to have their own buildings. They meet in storefronts. They, they meet in industrial warehouse spaces. And so God has gifted us with this place. And if this is the place that God has given us, then what we need to do is to reverence God when we come into this place. And the building is not going to make us better Christians. But what we do in the building and how we reverence God certainly will. Now, when I became Pastor Berean 14 years ago, I believed that the attitude of God, the church towards God, must change. The former pastor believed that the church is not a place of worship. And as strange as that might seem, that is prevalent among some strains of Baptist. And if you don't believe that the church is a place of worship, then when you come to church, you will not worship. That's common sense, isn't it? I believe that the Bible does teach corporate worship. I believe it teaches that Sunday is a special day of worship. We're going to talk about that beginning next week on the fourth commandment, how this is the day that we come to worship God. I do believe in this corporate worship. And I, I thought that the paradigm of Berean Baptist must change so that in everything that we do, we exalt the holiness of the name of our God. That we are here to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through His church. And there's not a Sunday that goes by that I don't express that in preaching or in prayers or comments that I make to you. I want to keep this thing before you all of the time that we are here for this purpose only. And that is to glorify Jesus Christ. And we lift His name, we exalt the name of God, and we hold it in reverence and holiness because this is what we do, glorify Jesus Christ. The commandment says that we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, and we want to do everything that we can to make sure that we keep this commandment. Now, just to remind you of our previous discussions, let me mention the topics. First of all, we talked about the principles of the command, and the principles are found in what it means to reverence God's name and what it means to misuse it. Now, I'm sorry I don't have time to backtrack over all that information today, so go back and listen to the previous messages to learn about the principles of the command. Then we talked about the priority of the name. In the Old Testament, the priority is expressed many ways in the different names that are used for God, but all of those expressions culminate in the New Testament when we come to Philippians chapter 2, where it speaks of the name of Jesus Christ. 
Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then thirdly is the place where we are today, and that is the prohibitions of the name. How are we prohibited from using God's name in the wrong way? So the prohibition is the myriads of ways that the name of God can be used wrongly. And you might think that you know all of them, when in fact you may only know one way. And that is most of the time we think that taking God's name in vain has to do with profanity. That curse words, that that's the way that we take God's name in vain. Certainly it is. When you use expletives, the kind that when they're written out, they have to be masked by symbols using the number symbol, exclamation points, question marks, the at symbol. You see that all the time, uh, trying to mask profane language. But if that's all you know about taking God's name in vain, then you might not know that you have been guilty of doing it in many other ways. You may not even be aware that you have taken God's name in vain. But at least we can say this, that if you know this one way, that you know that profanity is taking God's name in vain, and all of the commandments were concentrated in that one thing is profanity, then why would you do it? If this commandment is all about that, then surely you get that much, right? Why would you do that? Why would a Christian ever remotely consider God using God's name as a curse word? But the truth is that God's name can be taken in vain in many other ways. In the last message, we had a discussion of this. I only had time to consider this one way that God's name is used wrongly when we take it irreverently. And that's what I was just saying. That's the use of profanity. It can be taken the wrong way by using God's name as an expletive, by putting it in front of damn or in front of some other word. It certainly is wrong if you use it that way, but that usage only touches the corner of how our speech altogether can become profane. All types of profanity, even when you don't mention God's name, to use filthy language, to use profanity, ruins, it harms, it degrades God's gift of human speech. It is our language, our communication that separates us from all the rest of God's creation, uh, things that it's created. The ability to communicate with reason, to think, to talk to one another, to speak to each other with understanding. That is a special gift that God has given by putting within us the image of himself. Our language is our way of communicating. The first time that man was spoken to, the first conversation that man had was a conversation between God and man. And so whenever you speak, you must be aware that God has given you something of himself to enable you to speak. You are able to think and reason and to speak, which of all the creatures that God made upon this earth, only humans can do. So the worse that our speech becomes by the use of profanity, the more our relationships with each other degrade. We become desensitized to our humanity. We, we don't respect each other. Now, not only then do we slander God with evil speak, but we deface the image of God in others. So profanity, that is a big way that we use God's name in vain, but that's only one of the ways. Today, I'd like to take some time to look at some other ways, and I think that all of us will find ourselves guilty 
in at least one of these ways. Maybe you thought that you were doing a good job, but there are other ways that you can take God's name in vain. So how could we do that? Well, a second way that I want you to notice is that we can take God's name in vain by using it idly. Whenever we speak God's name idly, now it may be without thought and without intent, and that shows you that the name of God lacks such reverence in our subconscious that we can use his name as a filler for our conversations. His name is used at times as an expression of surprise, sometimes of disgust, depending upon the context. We use it when we aren't thinking. Our young people have grown up with the expression, Oh my God! And that's just a part of their vocabulary as much as a conjunction, a noun, a verb. It's as common as a grammatical part of speech. It seems like they just can't talk, they can't text, they can't tweet without saying, Oh my God. Now remember when I was young that to say, Oh God, or to say, Oh my God, I knew what would happen to me. That meant a trip to the bathroom and an encounter with a bar of soap. And then it meant going to the woodshed to be greeted with a willow switch. My dad did not let us use God's name in the house in that way. We would never say, oh my God. We would not say things like gosh and gee and things like that because he taught us that those were just slang words that were short for God and for Jesus Christ. And what he taught us was that is not the vocabulary of Christians. But that seems to be forgotten. It's not uncommon to hear Christians say things like this, Oh, Jesus! And, Oh, Jesus Christ! And you know that's even worse because that's more specific? Because you might say, Oh, my God! And other people may think, Oh, he must be talking about Allah. Maybe he's talking about some other God. But when you say Jesus Christ, that is very specific. That is worse. You take God's name in vain. Now, that's purposeful. That's horribly degrading to the name that is above all other names. And so if you use his name in that way, you should only pray that God would be pleased to give you one more day to live without snapping your neck. A person who says such things might not even be a Christian at all, because if the name of Jesus Christ does not mean anything other to you than sweetness, is that an indication that your heart has changed? Don't be guilty of speaking his name idly as if God was a bug or a tree or Jesus Christ is something other than what he is, high and holy. It can be taken in vain if you speak it idly. This is what Jesus said, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. It's quiet in here today, isn't it? Thirdly, how do you take God's name in vain? Well, you can take his name in vain when you use it insincerely. I believe this is one that catches many people who profess to know Christ. They speak his name with their lips, but they don't really have a heart for God. The hypocrite who says that I know Christ but acts otherwise takes God's name in vain. Now, when they speak, they may not use a curse word. There may not be any profanity that's attached to it, but they speak as if they love the Lord God and they know the Lord God, and it's as if they have Christ in their heart, but they're actually far from Him. They speak His name in vain. You can do that when you come into these worship services and you sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and yet your life proves that you don't love anything about Him. 
Your obedience disproves that you don't love him or proves that you don't love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That, that's what he said. This is the criteria. This is how you show that, that you actually do love me. You keep my commandments. But many of you, your life is a saga of hell of disobedience. Maybe last night you used profanity. Maybe last night you had a night out. You had a few beers. Maybe you went to a party. Where the last thing that's on the people's minds that you fellowship with are, is God. Things about God. They're not going to think about God. And yet you come to church as a holy person and you look at the screen and you sing the songs and you talk about loving God and worshiping God and exalting Christ, but your life is nothing like that. So that calling you a hypocrite is a step up from what you really are. Now you pray the prayers, you stand for congregational reading of God's Word, and the Bible ought to be a firebrand in your hands that scorches you. But it doesn't because you're a fake you don't really know Christ. Now I know what I'm saying to you is harsh. But plain truth needs to be spoken. We need to examine ourselves and see if we find ourselves in this condition. Now I'd like you to turn with me if you would to Ezekiel chapter 33. And I want you to hold on to Ezekiel for a little while. Because we'll read this passage and we'll come back to the book of Ezekiel again in just a moment. Could this scripture be an assessment of your true heart? Are you insincere when you talk about Jesus? Now, in this passage, we have a characterization of how people heard Ezekiel preach and what they did with God's Word. They acted when they heard Ezekiel preach like the Word was having a great effect upon them, that they loved the God that he was talking about. But notice what God says to Ezekiel, beginning in verse number 30. Also thou son of man, God is speaking to Ezekiel, also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words and do them not. Is that a fair representation of our church? Our workers and members of the church praising Christ? Do they do that without their lives praising him? They praise Him with their lips, but not with their lives. Insincerity is one of the worst ways that you can use God's name in vain. Jesus said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, fourthly, it's possible to take God's name in vain by using it incredulously. Do you know what that means? Incredulously? You can put that word into your vocabulary in place of some of the disgusting words that you know the definition to. Incredulously means to doubt the truth. It means to disbelieve. It means a lack of faith. Are Christians lacking in faith? How does incredulity defame the name of God? Well, you can do it when you pray and you doubt what God can do what he says. You approach God with skepticism and with disbelief. 
Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Is that a true statement or is it not? Ask and you shall receive. What about John 15, 16? You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of my Father in my name, he may give it you. Is that true? Are we people of faith? Do we really believe that? How do we sit here and pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and then in every petition we pray to God, we doubt that he's able to do what he says through his name. We don't think that God can do it. And so when you pray with doubt in your prayers, you are taking God's name in vain, so our Father then becomes a meaningless catchphrase to you. It's as if God doesn't exist. Or uh, he's no more than an idol who can't see or hear. He can't do anything. That's a violation of commandments 1 and 2. Either God is an idol or he is a liar who can't do what he says. A Romans 10.14 says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, that, in the context of that verse, it's talking about salvation. We need to use it that way. That we need to preach to people the gospel of Christ because they can't believe it if they've never heard it. But just take that verse stand alone. And I don't mean to take a verse out of its context and switch the meaning of it. But let's just think for a minute. What if you applied that verse to Christians, just what it says there? How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed. How can a Christian have the audacity to call upon God if they don't believe him? Lack of faith in prayer is to misuse God's name. Now, when the Bible says to us over and over again that God is gracious, he is merciful to those who call upon him, it is the height of blasphemy to disbelieve that truthfulness. God can be trusted in all things. One of his attributes is the faithfulness to his word. And if you don't trust that faithfulness, you deny his attributes. You're saying that God is not God. That's blasphemy. That's taking God's name in vain. Now, fifthly, you can take God's name in vain by using it indecently. Now, I put this one down as fifth in the list to show you that the singular way that we think that we take God's name in vain, which is that profanity, is just... One of many, but even this one, profanity, has many different facets to it. Now, I want to reemphasize that because when you use God's name in this way, when you take God's name in vain, it can actually branch out into the rest of the commandments. All of these commandments are interrelated. They work together. So when we use God's name in vain, we can use it also this way, when we mix his name with indecent things. Of course, when you join it to profanity, that's one of the worst. God's name is high and holy, and his name cannot be mixed with horrible, filthy things. But consider this also as a usage that is profane. A few days ago, I was listening to a sports radio show in which one of the announcers made an off-color remark about women in the Olympics. And let me just say this to you parents, that if you involve your your children in sports, make sure that they are in a sport where they don't have to expose their bodies to the lewd comments of, of people around them. But this sportscaster was enthralled with the environment of scantily clad women in the Olympics. And so he said, it's like God opened the windows of heaven. And he associated God with that wickedness, with that thing in his mind, that evil thing that's in his mind, 
the lust and all of that. And so he was using God's name profanely. And that was a man who claims to be a Christian. I've heard him say on his program before, I'm a Christian. He doesn't say he doesn't act much like it. But how can a person be a Christian and say such things as that? And when the devil quoted Scripture to Jesus, he used God's name in vain. He quoted the name in disbelief. He profanely associated God with him. Every time that a politician uses God's name, and he says, well, this is what God would do. This is what Jesus Christ would do. We're proposing this social program because this is what Jesus would do. And they attach his name to these profane programs that they have through their immoral programs. That's taking God's name in vain. I'm sure you're aware that there are many sayings in the King James Bible that have made their way into our common vernacular, into the English language as idioms. And even when you take those and use them in the wrong way, that's taking God's name in vain. Now, it's possible that we can speak them and use them in the right way, but we use them wrongly so many times. That takes God's name in vain. And the question I think that we ought to ask ourselves is when the world has so much disregard for the Bible... When they don't think anything about it as being the Word of God, they care very little for reading this and obeying it. They don't regard it as the Word of God. What are we doing with it? What are we doing making fun of the Word of God as His people? Why do we fuel the disrespect that others have for God's Word? And do you know that preachers are even guilty of this? That there are so many preachers that want to be stand-up comedians in the pulpit? That's what brings people in? Let's just joke about what we're doing. Let me tell a bunch of jokes to you this morning, get you in the right mood, and then I'll just toss a little scripture in here and there trying to help you out. That takes God's name in vain. Baptist preachers can do that. Now, sixthly, I wanted to be sure that I left time that we would get this in, that God's name can be taken in vain by speaking it ineptly. By that, I mean twisting and resting the Scriptures from their true meaning, and saying God said when God did not say. Now let me give you a biblical example, then we'll, we'll make a modern application. Let's turn back to Ezekiel again in chapter 13, if you're still holding on to that. And let me give you some background as you're turning to that Scripture. Ezekiel is one of the exilic prophets, that means that he prophesied during the time that Israel was in captivity in Babylon. And during that time, there were many competing prophets in Babylon and in Israel that claimed that they were speaking for God. Now, these were not prophets of heathen gods. These are prophets who said, we speak for Jehovah God. Now, this is what God says about them uh, in Ezekiel 13. I'm not going to read it all. There's a lot here, and uh, I suggest you read it later. But for sake of time, let's just read a little bit of it. Ezekiel 13, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, thy prophets are like the foxes in the deserts. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge, for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. For they have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, The Lord said, and the Lord hath not sent them. And they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. Have you not seen a vain vision, and have you not spoken a lying divination? 
Whereas ye say, The Lord saith it, albeit I have not spoken. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, ye have spoken vanity and seen lies. Therefore, behold, I am against you, saith the Lord God. Now when a person claims to speak for God, when he uses God's name to support a false teaching, to support false prophecies, he takes God's name in vain. What he does is he attaches God's name to a lie. Now when I think of this, the first thing that comes to my mind is the charismatic movement and word of faith preachers. They preach a prosperity gospel, and then they back that up with the gibberish tongues that they speak, and they claim that this is God's stamp of approval upon their message. And repeatedly they'll say, God told me to say this. God has given me a message for you. God spoke this specifically to me. I want to speak what God says to me, to you. And I've heard that many times. A preacher will say, I've seen a vision. God showed this to me. He gave me a word of knowledge. But I'm telling you that the Word of God teaches that all that God has to say to man and all that He wants us to know is found in the pages of the Bible. The Bible is the only objective means of understanding what God said, to know that God actually did say it. And so when someone comes to you and says to you, God told me to say this, God told me to give you a special message, He's given me a revelation that He wants me to speak to you, don't do it. Don't believe it. And how does he validate his message? He says to you, God said it. But God did not speak. That's one form of taking God's name in vain. It's visions and dreams that people claim, revelations that are claimed when God did not speak those things in his word. Now the second form is when someone takes the Bible and twists the meaning of it. There are denominations, there are cults that do this. But hold on to your seats for this. The worst offenders are the Roman Catholics. The worst offender is the Pope who claims the title of the Vicar of Christ. In other words, he says, I speak for God. I speak for God. I stand in the place of Jesus Christ. And the Roman Catholic Church says that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that means from the chair, or when he is in his official capacity, that when he speaks, it is as if God spoke. He is infallible in what he speaks. But he says what God did not say. He tells people to break the second commandment. He tells them to pray to statues of Mary and make the sign of the cross. He speaks to them in dead Latin, and he tells you this is the way that you worship God. But God didn't say it, and he's guilty of using God's name in vain. He takes scriptures like John chapter 6 and he twists that, twists the words of Jesus out of the truth that's contained there. And just as we'll see tonight in the Lord's Supper, the truth of it, he takes that chapter in John 6 and he mutilates it and makes it into an unholy mass in which he claims to sacrifice Jesus over and over again. And then he tells you that the bread and the wine are changed into the literal body of Jesus Christ, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it is by this change that you can be saved. Did God say any of that? No, God did not speak that. But here is what God's Word says. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another 
But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. You know what Paul's telling us there? Someone comes to you and says, well, we can't find it in the Word of God, but this is what I say. This is what our tradition says. And Roman Catholicism will go back over 1,500 years of tradition and say, this is what we are to do. And God says, and Paul said, if anybody comes to you and he gives you another gospel other than the one that you receive from us, let him be accursed. I didn't say it. Paul said that. He said it in God's Word. Now let's take that same thing there of Galatians chapter 1 and relate it back to Ezekiel 13. God said they speak lying words because they say things that he did not say. And God said, I am against all who speak for me when I have not spoken. Why? Because he, they use his name to validate a false message. They have disgraced his name with a lie. That's taking God's name in vain. Now that's the devil's word. Not only, not only does it blaspheme God, but it takes followers who are made to glorify God and makes them blasphemers and sends them to hell. And what does God say? I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. Now James put a warning label on words that are spoken by preachers. He said that the man who stands in the pulpit is going to come into greater accountability. The preacher has greater accountability than anyone because he claims to speak for God. And so he has to be sure that he gets the message right. If he doesn't, he will bear the consequences of leading people astray. So I'm telling you that word of faith preachers, the Pope, the priests of Catholicism, the cults and others have the hottest part of hell that's reserved for them because of this commandment. You don't take God's name in vain. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I realize, folks, I'm not going to make the cover of Christianity today with this kind of preaching. Uh, the only reason I ever would is for them to vilify me and tell them I'm a fringe lunatic of some kind because I say these things. But this is what the Word of God says. Handling the Word of God ineptly is taking God's name in vain. You have to be careful. When you misuse God's Word, you take His name in vain. Don't claim a wrong interpretation of the word, and then try to make that binding on others because when you do, you become a teacher yourself. And then you're going to stand in account before God. You have responsibility. Now you might think, well, you know, we're all good Baptists here. We're straight and true. We don't do things like this. We would never take God's name in that way. We're, we're always true to the word of God. And yet, there are many Baptists that will impose standards in which they say, this is what God said, and you have to do this because this is what God expects from you. But they spoke and not God. They used God's name, they put his authority upon what they said, but God did not say it. So if you attach God's name to regulations, you better be sure that God said it, or what are you? You're a Pharisee. You're making up laws that God did not say. Now, the Word of God here is not talking about heathens that are offenders. It's talking about people who claim to speak for God. So preachers in Baptist pulpits can be guilty of this, taking God's name in vain. And so in Israel, it was God's people that were guilty. It wasn't heathens he's speaking to. 
These are people that named his name. And still today, there are people who name the name of Jesus Christ, and that yet, yet they use profanity. They have lack of faith. They use it with frivolity. They do it by attaching God's name to doctrines that God did not teach. And so there are many, many ways that we take his name in vain. Now let me give you one more, and this will make seven ways. That's, that's an appropriate place to stop. Number seven, or letter G on your listening sheet, you can take God's name in vain by using it incongruously. That means that you attach God's name to things that are incongruous with the way that God works, that are different from what God would do. One of those is to use scriptures to support sin. Charismatics do it by claiming that the works of the devil are the works of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, faith, healing, which some claim come from God, are things that come from Satan because that's not the way that God works today. That is inconsistent with the way that God works. I don't have time to develop that all today, but you can check it out uh, that charismatics come perilously close to the unpardonable sin if it was possible to commit that sin today. Now, another example of this would be when someone takes the Scripture that says something like this. The, the Bible says this. If you do not provide for your own house, for your own family, then you are worse than an infidel. And a person will take that Scripture and use it to become a workaholic. And so he'll take God's day to work in order to get all the toys that he wants to have. And then he says, well, I'm doing this for my family. The Bible says I got to do this for my family. And they use this as a mandate to support their evil practices. That's mixing up scriptures. That doesn't work. You take, can't take God's word and support sin. That is confusion. That's just like uh, the people accuse Jesus of casting out devils by the power of Satan. And nobody in their right mind divides himself that way. So God certainly does not work incongruously in ways that contradict his word. And then another way that you can use God's name in vain is by swearing an oath. Now, incongruously. That is swearing by God that you're telling the truth and then commit perjury. That mixes things up. You take God's name and use it in support of a lie. Same thing is true, and we hear this so much, that flippantly say, people flippantly say, I swear to God, just in their speech, you know, going right along, I swear to God, or I swear to high heaven that this is true. Both of those things attach God's name to matters of no importance. And when you bring God's name into the picture, it had better not be for inconsequential purposes, for lies and used in ways that I would say are dirtwad uses of God's majestic name. And then if I might return to perjury for just a minute, God said if you swear falsely against someone that whatever their punishment would be, that shall be imposed upon you. We'll get to that when we get into the ninth commandment. We'll get deeper into that. I'm just showing you here that all of these commandments work together. When you mess up one, you're going to take in many others. Well, there are many other ways of attaching God's name to, uh, to evil. For instance... Uh, for hundreds of years, the popes of Rome tortured, maimed, and killed many Christians. And they said, this is righteous. God said for us to do this. They used God as an excuse. And so it goes on and on and on. Don't think that you kept the third commandment until you consider the multitudes of ways that you're guilty of violating it. Some of you have taken God's name in vain in the time it's taken me to preach this message this morning. 
That is, you claim Christ, you say that you love Christ, but it's easier for you to sit through two hours of a movie or three hours of a football game that you're missing on television right now. It's way, way, way easier to do that than it is to sit under 45 minutes of the exposition of God's Word. In your own mind, you've taken God's name in vain. Do you claim the name of the Lord unworthily? Now, what does all of this show us? It shows that the commandments are hard. They're hard. The first and second commandments showed us how hard they are. It's not getting easier, folks, is it? It's not getting easier as we go through the list. We find ourselves guilty. We can't keep up with this. We can't do this. We are weak. So what are we going to do about it? The only way that we can keep the commandments is to have them kept by the surety who stands good for us. Otherwise, we're condemned with every breath that we take. So what do you do? You run to Jesus Christ. Here's my last point. It's brief. Run to him because of this. Fourthly, the punishment in the command. The punishment in it. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. There are so many ways and we are guilty. None of us are going to escape the consequences of this command any more than we will any of the others. And so the only hope that we have is to run to Christ because this law of God condemns us not one of us has escaped at least one of these ways of breaking god's commandment now the bible says go to christ repent of your sins trust him to save you from them and i can promise you that god did say this that when you put your faith in jesus christ and you believe that he can save you from your sins and you trust him for that and he saves you then you are in the place that exalts Christ's name. Salvation exalts Jesus Christ. It holds it up. There is no other name by which we can be saved. The only way that a person can glorify God is through Jesus Christ. And when you trust Him, He'll lead you in ways to glorify Him, not to take His name in vain. Now back to the beginning of the message. This is what we're trying to do in Brian Baptist Church. Yes, when you come to church, it is for the purpose of worship, we exalt the name of Christ because we know that God will not hold us guiltless if we take his name in vain. So don't go as far as this to receive the punishment that's attached to the command. Don't go that far. Reverence his name. Exalt him in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And he will direct your paths away from the wrong usages of his name. Hallow the name of the Lord thy God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you acknowledging many, many ways that we've been guilty of breaking this command. Lord, we don't think. Our thoughts are not where they should be. We don't think about how holy the name is. So we let it slip into our conversations. We use it idly, flippantly. We have no regard for the precious name of Jesus Christ and what it stands for. Lord, forgive us of that. Help your people to come to you today in repentance of this. And then just the many, many other ways that we do it, when we're insincere, when we don't believe what you said you would do, we pray without believing, we worry, we're always troubled, thinking that 
you're not sovereign, that things are going on in the world that you have no control over, Lord, help us to realize that we can trust every word that you say. And then, Lord, just, just the other ways that we've talked about so many, I, I just pray that you'd help us to see how holy the name is, that Jesus Christ has been given a name that is above every other name, and we are commanded to trust in that name and to hold it up. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us to look at the command in that way. We're guilty. Forgive us. May we come to you with the reverence that we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope that everyone here understands conviction. I know you hear the word and we preach that. We need to be convicted of our sins. Conviction is not that I come to God and say, Well, I've been pretty good. I've done my best. I've tried to be good. And I just need you, Lord, to make up some of the deficiencies that I have. A true conviction of the heart is to fall down before God and say, I am an unworthy sinner. Lord, I deserve nothing. I haven't done anything to deserve your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. I can't please you in any way. And so I put myself wholly into your hands and I trust you and say, Be my goodness for me. Be the righteousness that I need to see the Father. And that's what Jesus becomes. And if you do anything less than that, you can't be saved. You have to realize how, how sinful that you truly are, that there is no righteousness that you can claim of your own. But that's not what we hear in most churches today. As I said earlier in the introduction, that people want to go away from church feeling good about themselves when they should be going away from the church thanking God for His grace to such vile and worthy sinners. Today it's more common to hear about self-esteem and how that you need to think that, well, I'm really a, a good person. Let's build me up and let's just, just talk about how, how good that I am. You never find that in the Word of God. Never once did Jesus talk about the goodness of men. It's always to condemn for sin. And then once He's revealed that, then he tells us, this is how you can be good. This is how you can know the Father, by faith in Him. So again, I would tell you, I, I hate it that you might go away, in one sense of the word, feeling bad about a sermon. You may just be mad at me, I don't know, and that's why you feel bad. I'm, I'm not sure. But if you go away feeling bad because of sin, and go away feeling bad because of conviction, then the message has done what the Holy Spirit intended to do show that we are sinners against God and the only way that we have any hope is Jesus Christ. That's what we encourage you to do today. Trust Christ. If you are already a Christian and you've done that, live it. Jesus said, you show people you love me by keeping my commandments. And that's why we preach the Ten Commandments. Let's sing another verse of our song. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.